You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And for the first time in 2019, the lights have taken full effect. From backdoor sliders to the batter's eye, and finally, up to the booth, Ken Korak takes you inside the game with Taking Effect. Now, here's the voice of the A's, Ken Korak. And from the Coliseum in Oakland, this is our first Taking Effect show on uh, A's cast and uh, on the TuneIn app as we uh, have programming for you 24-7, A's programming all season, all year long. And uh, David Feldman is with us, and David's been a fixture here at the Coliseum for many, many years, beginning with his time as a fan, but then uh, David and I started working together many years ago, uh, back in the 90s, when Dave was the uh, associate producer on the A's telecast on Channel 36. We did a lot of games together, and uh, even more recently, David's still working down in the production truck on the A's telecast on NBC Sports Bay Area. He does dozens of games every year as a producer for both ESPN and the Pac-12 Network. But, um, David, your time at the Coliseum began many, many, um, I might say decades ago, uh, as a fan and as an ardent fan of the A's. Do you remember when you went to your first A's game? I do. I do. It was 1973. It was bat day. Uh, I got a Sal Bando bat, a green, Kelly Green bat, that I actually used in Little League games until I broke it. Uh, Vita Blue pitched. He lost. It was, the A's got shut out 3 nothing. In fact, I believe the first four or five games that I came to the Coliseum, the A's lost. <laughs> when this is the World Championship. So you were like a bad luck charm. I thought this was terrible. The first time I saw the A's win was in Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium, in 1973. And a game that Ray Fossey played in, and we've talked about it with Ray Fossey, because <laughs> it was a crazy game where the A's were trailing, and Dick Williams was going to bench all his regulars. He was going to put all the Scribinos in because they were down by four or five runs late in the game. But the A's rallied back. Ray got a big hit, and the A's had to end up winning 13-12. to 12, And it was the first time I ever saw the A's win. That was on a trip with your parents back to, uh, back to New York? Back to Philadelphia, actually, because that's where my parents were from, and that's where my dad grew up as a Philadelphia A's fan. I mean, he grew up yelling at Connie Mack, wow. literally yelling at <laughs> from the stands. But that's where my love of the game came from my dad, because that's my dad would take my family to games here at the Coliseum. Um, and any t- chance we got to go on that trip, we went to a game at Yankee Stadium. We also went to a game at Veterans Stadium uh, in Philadelphia to see the Phillies play and see Mike Schmidt, a young Mike Schmidt at the time. Um, and I remember that. I remember seeing Veterans Stadium, seeing AstroTurf. Mm-hmm. I had never seen an AstroTurf field before, and I thought, this is terrible. Why are they doing this? Where's the grass? Where's the dirt? Yeah. Um, that's really where it all started. Well, and your parents have had season tickets for A's games for many, many years. And, David, how would you describe, and not just for yourself, but a lot of your friends and people that you know who have gone to A's games for all these years, how the game is passed down through the generations. Well, that, that's it. I mean, you're, for me, I think it's a tradi- traditional story where my dad takes me to a baseball game and talks to me during the game. You know, it's not just, here, kid, here's a hot dog, here's, here's a Coke, and, and I'm going to go watch the game. He would talk to me, and I remember him sh- pointing out Sal Bando. And he'd say, because Sal Bando was playing in on a batter, and pointing me out why he was doing that. And that's what really started it for me. And then you get involved just the, the talking, and what – you don't get much at, at basketball and football games as much as baseball because there's more time. 
And I think that's where you're communicating with, with people who are older than you, but they're listening to you. Um, they're talking to you like another, just like a fan. They're not talking to you like a kid. And I think that's a big part of where the game gets passed down. And for me, it started at my dad's company at Season Tickets in Section 119. Um, eventually it changed to where we're sitting in the bleachers. And then there's a whole new group of people that we saw every day in the left field bleachers. My high school years were set in the bleachers with these new people and with my dad and my mom. It was a whole family thing, right? And I know there's a lot of kids who grow up, and especially when you get into that, that teenage years, you get embarrassed from your parents. I wasn't one of those. I was so proud to hang out with my parents at baseball games. And my dad, uh, the people out in the bleachers, they love my dad because he, uh, he, at the time, he was a smoker. And you could smoke in the Coliseum, right? And he would sit in the front row and he'd smoke a cigarette and then he would flick it because there was a little ledge on the backside of the left field fence. And he would try and always hit that ledge with the cigarettes. And then people would cheer him on as he was doing this. Um, and I remember when they started putting smoking regulations into the Coliseum, which is obviously a very good thing. But I was like, well, what's my dad going to do now? we got to flick his cigarettes. But yeah. luckily my dad stopped smoking, so it's not an issue anymore. Are some of those bleacher creatures still going to games out here at the Coliseum and sitting out there, David? They are. They've, they've changed a little bit. Obviously when the bleachers got taken away because of Mount Davis, which is horrible, um, it changed the community a bit. My parents moved to behind the plate in the second deck. Um, but we still have some friends that we always get together at the Super Bowl. These were these bleacher people that we sat with every game, but every Super Bowl, my mom has a party, and they still come. And now, you know, it's funny. You see how life goes by, too. We've had some friends who have passed on. We've seen divorces. We've seen remarriages. You see this whole circle of life going, but baseball has always been the one thing that tied us all together. And it's so great on Super Bowl Sunday because we always considered that the start of baseball season as, as opposed to the end of football season. And we would get together and talk. And they, we still have some of our friends who are diehard center field bleacher people. Um, and it's just great. It's just this, this whole community of people. Okay, so now you're sitting out there in the outfield and some of the great teams for the A's. Who were the best outfielders as far as interaction with you guys? Because that, that happened, right? I mean, Ricky Henderson, the A's had uh, Dave Henderson, who had this great big personality, the late great uh, Hindu. So as far as interaction, because I know you had it, who were some of the A's outfielders that you guys – had a good time with? Well, there was a book written back in the late 80s called Baseball Confidential. And what it was is a writer went around and he talked to a bunch of players about the different ballparks and different things in baseball. And they ended up talking to Kirk Gibson. And this was before the World Series uh, when he was with Tiger. And he talked about how the outfield fans in Oakland were the worst because they would get on him the worst. Well, part of that is because Kirk wouldn't play with us. Right, because that's the thing. When you get guys out there who you know interact with you, then you became fans of them. You know, A's outfield. Ricky was great because Ricky would always point to us and talk to us. Dave Henderson was great, but it was the visiting guys who we we would yell at, right? And and if they would play with us, we would become fans. Like Chet Lemon, who was an outfielder for the White Sox and the Tigers in the '80s, he was great. At one point, it was probably the greatest heckle I've ever seen. One of our guys stood up holding two lemons with faces on them and said, "Chet, Chet." Chet turns around. And he goes. Hey, Chet, I got your family up here. It's great. Chet just falls over laughing. So the, Reds, the White Sox at the time, they had Kenny Williams, who's now their president, used to be their GM, right, and Daryl Boston were two of their outfielders. And Daryl Boston was great. He would talk to us. We would have fun. And Kenny Williams would do nothing. He would stone face. He'd never even look at us. 
and we'd start yelling at Kenny Williams, and Daryl Boston would be the one laughing. And he'd be, and Kenny Williams would look over at Daryl Boston. How could you? What are you doing? Not going to listen to these guys? Fantastic. Um, so what did Ricky say to you guys? Ricky would just always point. He'd just always look up and point. You'd cheer for him. Anytime he did anything, you know, as soon as he came out into the field, you're giving him a standing ovation. And he'd look and he'd point. He'd throw baseballs out. Um, here's one for you. Dave Parker, who, you know, didn't play a lot of outfield when he was with the A's. He was a DH. But so this was during batting practice. And never forget this. Dave Parker's out there shagging balls. And all of a sudden, he walked through the fence. It was like a Field of Dreams moment. He walked into the bleachers, up into the stands, and sat with us, full uniform, the whole thing. And you're like, it really was. You're like, he came through the, the, the field back there just to, to sit with us and just talking. He was like, I want to see what you guys see. I want to see what it's like up here. Yeah. And it was awesome. That's great. David Feldman is joining us on uh, our first show on uh, Taking Effect on A's Cast, your 24-7 source for A's programming. And, uh, David, you and I both talked to broadcasters from other teams that come in here. And it might be one of those Tuesday or Wednesday nights where the crowds aren't that great, maybe seven or 8,000. But it always sounds like there are fifteen or 20,000. And other broadcasters have said to me, you know, we still enjoy coming here because there's energy at the ballpark even on those nights. Is there a grittiness or is it an underdog mentality? Or some people, uh, when Susan Slusser and I were... Um, doing our book on the A's, we interviewed uh, Jonas Rivera, uh, one of the uh, Executives Academy Award winner at Pixar, and he said the renegade image of Oakland has kind of spawned some creativity. Uh, why do you think it is that there is energy at this ballpark even during the nights when the crowds aren't that great? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the people who are in the ballpark on those nights, those are the people who want to be here. They don't they're just not, you know, passerby fans who just want to go hang out. They want to be here, and they're into the team, and they make it known that they're into the team. And that's why I always, always frustrated me when you hear people talk about the attendance or rip the low attendance. And I always thought that was so wrong because the people who were there, those are the people who should be celebrated, right? Because they're here night in, night out. For us, it was the left field bleachers. Now you see it in the right field bleachers with that group out there. Those are the most important people, and they should be celebrated and not – in a way, when the people were ripping the attendance, it always felt like they were mocking the people who were there. Mm -hmm. Why would you go there? Nobody goes there. Right. No, that's not the wrong tack. These are the people. This is the, the ride-or-die people, and they're so important, and they're so into the team. And there is, I think, a grittiness to it. Um, it was a big change, you know, back in the 80s when the A's were the best team in baseball, and they had huge crowds, and 30,000 a night was, was the normal. And Candlestick was going on in San Francisco, and they were getting the small crowds. And they used to call the Oakland crowd, the, you know, the wine and cheese and all this. And they, it was Candlestick was the gritty. That's kind of flipped. Totally flipped, right? When they built the new ballpark in San Francisco, that was the wine and cheese. That was the people who were just there to be seen. And it was the people in Oakland at, at a Coliseum. It was a rundown. And before mentioned Mount Davis, which really did change this place and changed a lot about it. But the people who were here just got that, that hard edge to them. And it's part of that town. The town has always seemed that way to San Francisco, that San Francisco's the big city and the bright lights, and Oakland's the more grittiness. And these people bring it. I, I think that has a big deal to do with how the crowds are. How important have the A's been to your parents over the years, and especially as they've gotten older, because they're still going to the games? They still go to the games. They still go to uh, every weekday afternoon game and every weekday weekend game or 
day weekend game. Um, it's a big thing. It's it's a again, it's a family thing. It gets them out of the house together. It's something they do together, uh, and the people that they've met and they're friends with, they're all here. I think it's I think it's for a lot of people who have that way. The greatest thing about baseball, and, and I feel this way, it's every day, right? It's a story every day, and you get to come out here, and, and you know, my dad watches the games obviously at home on television, and then they're here at the games. They listen on the radio. Uh, it's a big part of their lives, and I think it. I don't want to say it's um, it's what's kept them together over fifty some years now. I don't even know what they're up to, but it is a it's a great thing that they do together. In the I guess pantheon of greatness out here, and you've made your living in the media, Bill King and Lon Simmons, and the fact that they were paired together, which was the greatest pairing I think in the history of baseball on the radio in 1981, and really helped turn the franchise around. Where did they stand? It's when they got hired in before the 1981 season. You know, Bill King was one of my was my idol. Right? I wanted to be a broadcaster at that point, and he had done the Raiders and the Warriors, and he was by far the the most talented broadcaster I'd ever heard. Um, I didn't know much about Lon Simmons because I was not a Giants fan. Uh, I didn't listen to Giant games, but I knew him a little bit from football, and I knew the big deep voice. Um, but when the A's hired Bill King, the first thought was. Can Bill do baseball? That sport's too slow for Bill. He's never going to do baseball. Um, we were wrong about that. Um, and then Lon, and then to hear them, the two of them together and the way they called the games, it legitimized everything about the A's, right? Because now they just gotten out of the whole Charlie Finley mess, but they still had Billy Martin managing them. They won the first 11 games in 81. This is a real deal because Bill King and Lon Simmons are calling this team. That changed everything, and just listening to them and, and learning about baseball. And to me, again, learning more about Lon, listening to him, Lon watched the game like I watched the game. He would get frustrated with the players when they would make a bad play. He would point that out. I distinctly remember Luis Polonia making a bad throw, overthrowing the cutoff man. And I'm yelling about, you know, and there's Lon saying, Polonia has to hit the cutoff. He said what the fans were feeling. And then he had that dry sense of humor where he would just sneak in little one-liners that would just have you rolling. And it's just, it really, I think for the whole area, when you got to listen to Bill and Lon call baseball, you couldn't help become a bigger fan, right? And if you weren't a fan at all, you were going to become one because you wanted to listen to them. And then he would tell it goodbye. Greatest uh, You know, we, of course, I went out to dinner with Bill like 100 times over the years or more than that. But when you were traveling with the A's, we used to go out quite a bit, and it was almost like people had to get a number, get in line to, you know, get a number for the opportunity to go out to dinner with Bill. Because going out to dinner with Bill was one of the great joys of being on the road with the A's, right? What was that like for you? Unbelievable. I'll never forget this. We were in Tampa Bay, uh, where the A's stay in St. Petersburg, where they play, and there's a famous steakhouse on the Tampa side. And uh, you, Bill, and I decide we're going to go to dinner there that one night. And I was driving. And uh, I, <laughs> I remember driving into the parking lot and almost getting us killed as I made a left turn, thinking I almost just ruined the whole A's broadcasting team. But being able to sit down with Bill and hear his stories. And he was such a magnificent storyteller and a great recall for events. And he was always open to questions, right? You could ask him anything, and he, he would tell you about it. And then he'd be interested in you. Right, he'd turn it back, and he'd want to hear your opinion on things. And that that night, because that restaurant has a dessert room, mm-hmm. 
that was upstairs. And Bill always talked about he was never a sweets guy. He was never a dessert guy. But both of us were kind of, Bill, we got to go check it out. We're here, right? We got It's a dessert room. And we went up there, and it's this private thing. We got like almost like a private booth and a total dessert menu. And he ordered uh, some sort of chocolate on strawberries. And he was just having the greatest time. And to be able to hang out with Bill and you, for me, it was just like this is, this is what it's all about. And the games are great, and I love baseball, but the relationships you build. And for me, they talk about never meet your heroes. That was wrong with Bill. You wanted to meet your hero if your hero was Bill King. Yeah, the only thing with me and Bill is that we had to negotiate a time to have dinner, and I've written about this <laughs> right, many times because Bill felt if you ate before 9 o'clock at night, you were being uncivilized, and I kind of prefer maybe 7-ish. Right. So we'd have to negotiate these, these uh, you know, dinner engagements with Bill. I wanted to switch gears as David Feldman is joining us on Taking Effect on A's Cast because you were with us over in Japan in your role as an official scorer, which is something you do quite a bit here at the Coliseum and also across the bay uh, for the Giants. How does one become an official scorer? Well, in my case, uh, I used to do stats on the TV broadcast. So I was always up here in the, in the press box behind Greg Papa. And whenever there was a bad call, what I thought was a bad call, I'd be the guy who would be running down bitching about it. So, unfortunately, one of the scorers in the Bay Area has passed away, and they needed a replacement. And they said, well, you, you're the one always bitching about it. You do it. Yeah. And I thought it was great. Right? My name was going to be in the box score. I was never going to be. It was the only way I was ever going to get in the box score. Um, but to get a chance to play a very small, minuscule part in this game that I love, uh, it was just too great of an opportunity to pass up. You know, there are a lot of moments where the official scorer is on the hot seat. Where, and I don't know how much we can we can talk about this. If you felt pressure as a scorer, and I'm thinking because as we're recording this, the Red Sox are here. And last year during Shambhaniya's no hitter, San De Leon hit a pop fly into short left center field, and Simeon went back and tried to make an over the shoulder catch and bobbled the ball. Art Santa Domingo was the scorer for the game, and he ruled that a hit, which I think was the right call at that time. I, it was much debated. Uh, how did you look at that play? And do you believe that, because the old theory about, well, the first hit has to be clean, how did you see that as it applied to that play with Sandy Leone and, and Simeon in short left center? When I saw it the first time, I thought, boy, that should have been caught. But there's a difference between should have been and, and could have been, and he had his back turned to the infield. Is it an ordinary play? I think anytime you're running away from, if you're an infielder running away from the infield with your back to the, towards the plate, it's probably not a regular play, an ordinary effort. So I was okay with it as a hit. You know, as a scorer, you do you want you want every play to be made and you want every hit to be clean because you don't. That makes our jobs that much easier. You don't want to be a part of it. You don't never want to be the story. You know, I was lucky enough to be official scorer for three no hitters, including a perfect game in San Francisco, um, and there was nothing. There was no, nothing controversial. But I can tell you from experience, when you get late into the game um, and there hasn't been a hit, uh, you just hope that the next hit that comes is just a clean base hit up the middle. Are you nervous? I think, um, I think there are times you can be nervous. Um, I think you're more nervous when there's a play like that with the Simeon play that could have been either way, a 50-50 call. And let's say he had called it a hit. And now there's no other hits. The rest, you, I think you're begging for a hit at that point, right? right? To, to make sure that this isn't a big story. Um, if it, to me, if, there, it's, if it's a 50-50 play, 
and there's a no-hitter in progress, as long as it's 50-50, rule it an error. I mean, that's the way I would look at it. Yeah, I think you want to hope that you're going to call it. I'm not saying you call it, you, 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 that you rule an error on a ball that's clearly a hit. But right. if it's 50-50 and it's a no-hitter, I don't think there's any harm in ruling it an error. But but how late in the game does that does right. that apply? Does that apply in the first inning and apply in the fifth inning? I, I think you want to call credibility-wise – same thing you call in the seventh inning, you call in the first inning, no matter what. You want to be consistent with your calls. Uh, you don't want to be impacted by what's happening on the field. And I think much like an umpire making calls, right, the score shouldn't dictate how he makes a call. And, again, not comparing myself to an umpire, but there is a, a certain thing where the score shouldn't matter. Every play should be taken on its own merits. It's great in theory, but in reality, yeah, it does, af- it does affect you. You know what's going on in the game. Yeah. So now we're in Tokyo. And uh, Ichiro is coming to the plate, and it's his last at bat. It's his last ever at bat after all these years, and he's back home, and there's 46,000 people at the ballpark. And as an aside, um, you go back to Ichiro's first year in 2001. I called his first major league hit, and I called his last at bat. So he hits a ground ball to short to Simeon, and it's a very close play at first base, and Marcus throws him out, and the call was correct. But now if he bobbles it just a little bit, Right, I mean, it's a little bobble. Now Ichiro beats it out. All eyes are going to be on you. I'm not going to lie. I went through that situation <laughs> in my head. I'm like, okay, international incident, literally. Um, no, I. There was some nerves about that because I didn't want, I didn't want to have to make a call on that at all on a play like that for Ichiro. I remember when Ichiro was going for the hit record in '04, and he was in Oakland. I think right before he went to Texas where he broke the record, but that was I, they were talking to me about that. And you're just like, you know, what happens? What Does this play? And you just, again, you're just, just make a clean hit. Just be something. Mm-hmm. And, but it, I went through those scenarios in my mind, like what, what happens? You know, Ishiro doesn't run quite as fast as he used to. Right? It used to be when Ishiro was first, you know, ground ball is short. Even a normal ground, he was going to beat it out. It was going to be hit. So any bobble wasn't going to matter. It was a hit no matter what. He doesn't have quite the speed. So would a short bobble affect you that much? Would he, would he be able to beat it out? Luckily, it didn't happen. Everything was good. I wish he had gotten a hit just for, as a fan because I was mm-hmm. in Seattle, too, for his first hit. Um, it would have been cool cool to see. It would have been a cool way to end it. It was still pretty cool the way they ended it with yeah. the, the lap around the field post game, which was pretty special to yeah. see. What was that like being the official scorer over there? Because there's, obvi- there's a huge contingent of media from Japan and so how did you work that out so that they understood what you were calling on the various plays? You know, this was different this year. This is the third time I've been there with the A's, my fourth time over there over there overall because I was there with the World Baseball Classic. Um, and the previous times I've been there, they've always given me an interpreter who, who would make the calls in Japanese after I would. This year, I was a little different. I think we all kind of experienced this year different than years past. They pretty much left us alone there, right? <laughs> exactly. If I hadn't been there before, I would have no idea where I was supposed to go, or the fact that in Japan, at the Tokyo Dome, the official score runs part of the scoreboard. I have to literally push the hit and error button to put it on the big board out in center field. If I had not been there before, I would never have known that because no one came and talked to me. Nobody from baseball came and talked to me. Um, finally, right before the game started, some uh, two gentlemen from the Tokyo Dome came over. They didn't speak English, and they were trying to explain to me I had, if I had not been, I had no idea what they were saying. Um, and there was nobody to interpret for me. Luckily, I knew. So I just did the calls like I normally did and hope everybody figured it out. Um, the other thing that's different in Japanese baseball 
um, compared to the major leagues, where the major leagues there's one score per game. In Japanese baseball, there's two, sometimes three scores. So can you just imagine the arguments that, especially when there's only two, the arguments that must take place when there's just guys going back and forth? Didn't they used to do that at the All-Star game? They did. They used to do it at the All-Star game and the World Series. The World Series, they used to have three scores. It would be a local score, president of the Baseball Writers Association, and I think the local president of the baseball, depending on the city. And it became a big problem when the Giants were playing Kansas City in 2014. Um, where there was a call that the scorer knew the rule mm-hmm. and wanted to score it a certain way, and the two writers who were being assigned did not know the rules but were arguing this something different. And it was two against one, and they had to announce this ruling, which was... I mean, even though the one knew the rule. Knew the one. They, these writers kind of overshot him, and he, it got changed eventually. But it became such a situation where they said, we can't do this anymore. So now they actually do do two scores, but legitimate official scores from that city where one's the lead and one's just sort of a backup. In case there is a questionable call, he can ask his buddy what he thinks. But that became a problem in 2014. Do you know every word in the rule book? I know most of them. Uh, I will say I do read the rule book uh, before the season starts every year. And uh, then during the season, whenever I see a certain play, and not just the scoring rules, but the baseball rules, to, to make sure I refresh myself on certain plays. I was doing a college game yesterday, and there was a rule, uh, uh, ball hit to the shortstop. He was going to go to second to touch the bag, but he was late, and then he ended up throwing the ball into the stands. So the question was, where does the runner from first go? Uh, and just to refresh myself, because that's the f- some people think, well, the runner already made second. He gets two bases. He gets home plate. But the rule is, because it was the first throw but from an infielder, it's from where the runner was where the pitch was. So he was only awarded third base. But there was an argument going on in the field, and I was able to tell our announcers, no, this is the rule. Mm-hmm. He only gets to third. So I, you know, I want to do that not just to know the rules but also help other people who may not. Are there bad rules in scoring? Like to me and you and I have talked about this. Like I've always felt – that you should be able to assume a double play. I don't think that's fair to the pitcher. I mean, it's a well-hit ball to the shortstop. He throws to second. It's going to be a 6-4-3 double play, and the runner's going to be out by 10 feet, and the second baseman throws the ball into the dugout. Well, he does get to go to second base, but the first base part of that is that you can't assume a double play. Let's say the ball just rolls away from the first baseman, and the catcher backs it up, and the runner has to stop at first. So he's at first, but there's no error there. I don't think that's fair to the pitcher if the pitcher makes a good pitch. Why can't you assume a double play? I think that's one of the, the things in scoring that I'd like to see change. Yeah, it is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? especially when you see a tailor-made double play ball and the second baseman just airmails it. It's, he's going to be out. Why can't we assume that out? We can see it with our own eyes. You assume an out on a regular ground ball to short. Exactly. In the, in the same play, if that ball, if he makes a good throw and the first baseman drops it, you can give an error to the first baseman. So why can't we give an error on the throw? It doesn't make sense to me. No, that, that's a good one. There are, some, there are some interesting rules like if you same play first and second, ground into a double play, you get charged with grounding into a double play as a batter. That's mm-hmm. a stat. Now, you do the same thing and you ground into a triple play, you don't get charged with grounding into a double play. You get charged for nothing. Really? So <laughs> it's just why who, who decided that? You pick a runner off first, he goes to second. It's a bad throw, but he gets a stolen base. He gets a stolen base because you can't assume that he's going to be out, right? And there, this is actually pretty funny. Um, before t- 2012, they never used to have official scorer meetings. 
right? You had these official scores in the different markets and the different stadiums, but they never talked. They never did anything. There was no communication. Um, there was really no oversight. So in 2012, there was a new collective bargaining agreement, and there was enough money to hold the first ever baseball scores meeting in New York. And they flew a score from every uh, team or every ballpark to New York to meet and talk. And what we found out is that there have been scores in certain cities scoring things completely wrong for 20 years. <laughs> if you look back at, at Prince Fielder, Prince Fielder, when he played for Milwaukee, probably got about 11 or 12 throwing errors he never should have been charged with because it was the same play, runner on first, pitcher throws over, picks the runner off, runner never breaks stride going to second, Prince Fielder hits him in the back. They were calling an error on Prince Fielder. Wow. By rules, that's a stolen base. You cannot assume the out on a tag play like that. But for, tw for 20 years, they've been calling it wrong in Milwaukee. Well, you know, you and I will have the chance to debate this stuff over the course of the season because this uh, will be ongoing with uh, the two of us getting the chance to sit down and talk on our Taking Effect show on A's cast. And, uh, David, it's always great to, to talk with you because I always feel enlightened <laughs> after we have the chance to get together. So thanks for the visit. Uh, this is great. Having, talking with you, Ken, it's it's highlight of my day for sure <laughs> you're very low standards <laughs> david Feldman joining us on taking effect on a's cast and more programming is straight ahead this has been a presentation of the oakland athletics hey rob bradford here you guys know i'm always up for a good mvp story and one of the best stories is wasabi technology wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the red Sox and nhl teams like the bruins and vancouver canucks even the liverpool football club is getting in on the wasabi action so why is wasabi the mvp well wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the amazons of the world are charging in fact wasabi is up to 80 percent less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from wasabi's ai enabled intelligent media storage wasabi air to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals data deletion and ransomware wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.